Welcome to the artistic interviews for Architectures of Hiding Symposium uh, put on by uh, Cryptic. I'm Ryan Steck, uh, the Artistic Director at Art Engine, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Pallavi Swaranjali, and I'm one of the coordinators for Cryptic, as well as one of the co-conveners for the Architectures of Hiding Symposium. Great, and today we're here um, with uh, Josh Silver. Um, Josh uh, is a multidisciplinary designer, researcher, writer, translator, and indexer. Uh, he received his MARC and BAS from University of Toronto in the fall of 2021. He will be starting his PhD in architecture at the University of Manchester. Uh, his work explores specialized writing and constraint, architectural processing, digital archaeology, and the infraordinary. Uh, welcome, uh, Josh. Nice to have you here. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to start um, with kind of broad question of inspiration and uh, talk a bit about what your work is. So I think wondered if you could, you know, describe a bit of the inspiration for your project, um, describe the project a little bit for us, give us a bit of insight into it, um, and particularly sort of um, why uh, this uh, novel from uh, Georges Perec that you've chosen to be at the center um, of your work, what inspired you to pick that work and engage in this process of translation? Yeah, so the, the project overall is, um, it's kind of a theatrical adaptation of Perec's novella, which is entitled the, in English, The Art and Craft of Asking Your Boss for a Raise. Um, although that's been translated a bunch of different ways, so this is kind of my translation of it. Um, so Georges Perec, he's a French writer, he's, he's a member of the Ulipo, which was a, um, a group of French writers in um, that kind of, it was kind of around from the 60s until the present, it's still around, though the members are ancient at this point. Um, and the, the group focused on, it was kind of sort of an outgrowth of surrealism and pataphysics and was kind of its own uh, independent thing kind of that was um, organized around uh, constrained writing as a technique for writing um, and that means uh, both rule systems but also other kinds of um, kind of constraining tactics um, so it's not just making operations or setting up of rules, but also the way in which the rules can be generative or produce other kinds or modes of writing or uh, and expression from them. Um, so what you'll find is you'll find a lot of the members of the LIPO tend to come from mathematics and other non-literary fields. You also find that a lot of them tend to um, not write as much publicly and develop more constraints that end up being group internal or find their way out through other kind of bends. So yeah, so he's a member of the Ulipo and this is kind of where I'm starting as well is from the side of constraint and those tactics and what how they can be used in other instances and how they can begin to either provide containers for narrative or provide views into the operations like the kind of world of, you know, the world that architecture takes place in. So I was reading that novella in the context of a few others. 
because I was we, I was cross-referencing it since this was a thesis project originally, um, and I was supervised by Brian Boygon on this. And his idea was that you can you can cross-reference a couple of different you could say disciplinary positions by moving one to another site, and that the process of displacing the discipline allows you to operate on it in a different way. So the idea was, I started from this position of architectural simulation in a archeological context, you can look at the kind of conditions of the past, not in the sense of either memory or in the sense of historicity. Um, historicity being like the events, you know, the kind of like oh, history as events, right? That come one after the other, um, whether that formulates itself as like a kind of view of progress, a teleology, you could say, or whether that formulates itself as a narrative. I was more interested in like, okay, we have a condition. It's in that some other time. We don't have full access to it, um, but it is a kind of everyday situation. It's it's here. It doesn't necessarily have much to do with the events of the day, either because it's marginal to them uh, or it's, um, it's kind of a world that's not that of, you could say, either a historical kind of chronicle. You could say like, oh, this event happened, there was this king, these politics changed or whatever. Um, so I start with that. It's kind of like, okay, we have material. Um, it's a kind of past material. We have to somehow decode it or figure out something about it, figure out how it ties into a kind of other things that are going on, but also figure out how people occupy it, right? And how they live in that environment. So I started from there and cross-referenced it to constraint writing as a technique both as a research technique, which kind of moves through Karek. His Jeza, he develops this kind of approach to looking at the world using uh, constraint as a tactic, which he develops in a, a book. It's called L'Infordinaire, which is um, the infraordinary. You can write from an infraordinary, which he opposes to extraordinary in being not regularness and everydayness, but something that's actually underneath that, not a, not a stability that's underneath it. Um, but a kind of position which is so deep underneath it and that holds ordinariness in place. Um, and that you can try and you can start looking at that by a process of writing towards the unfordinary. Uh, it's a set of tactics, set of ways of like looking at and inhabiting the environment, a set of ways of moving through it. So I, I kind of processed this archaeology, I don't know if you call it that, but this kind of position through constrained writing and the tactics that emerge from that, the ability to, to move across or section a, a set of material conditions through the constraint, but also the ability that the constraint allows you to process it into a new, um, a new kind of product, a new, either it's an artistic product, whether it's a spatial condition, whether it's, uh, in my case, ended up being theater because theater ended up being a really good kind of site to work on. Um, so those are the two things. What you have is you have a kind of archeology span that's being displaced through constrained writing to a new territory. Um, and what it allows you to do is to get a sense of the, the kind of material in its full physicality, but also the mechanisms that are able to move that material, right? Not just the physicalness of moving like, I don't know, moving from one side of a room to another, but also the, the kind of mechanisms, like whether it's uh, economic mechanisms. At, at the time I was looking at a very far, like at the beginning of this project, I was looking at a very far past. I was looking at um, the late antique period where the 
kind of economic mechanisms are very different than they are now, or even at the time when I propose when my the kind of um, stage play that I've developed takes place uh, or adapted takes place. Um, uh, these economic mechanisms are very different. The political mechanisms are very different. Um, the ways in which communities interact are very different. So the idea is that you want to see how the relationships work and also how the things work at the same time. And what I found in developing the project was that the theatrical mode allows you to do it because you can kind of make a boundary around the simulation and do it in real life, as opposed to having a simulation in a computer where you don't get a sense of how it's how that simulation is being produced. When you do it in real life, you, there's an extra layer that goes on in making things physical again, like the movement from physical to um, processual or a kind of a kind of digital constraint is almost, I don't know, there's a, there's a way to go on that, but uh, this physical to kind of processual back to physical again, that movement allows you to like pull out the layers and then reveal them again. <laughs> In a different way so that's kind of the movement that's going on that's kind of like the the background of the project that holds it in place yeah i can see that there is such a rich depth of engagement with the text um that you've have all of these um, sort of iterations and permutations mm -hmm. um of this um spatial project in your uh, in your practice and this so the what we're seeing or what we will see um during the architectures of hiding uh, symposium is uh, simply one iteration or one expression of this process that you've been working mm -hmm. on. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, because all of the pieces of the project are, they're not like, it's not like the drawing works for the performance. It's that they're kind of on the same, they're kind of in the same territory uh, insofar as you can read a different aspect of what's going on through the drawings than you can through the a hypothetical real performance, which has not yet happened, and which you can read a different aspect through the digital manifestation and, uh, and a kind of full-scale model version. They all have pieces or facets as opposed to being um, one flowing from the next. That really, uh, I've been listening to your comments about the constraints that becomes very important for a rich narrative, right? Because it's, you're exploring constraint or not probably, you are exploring constraint as a medium to um, elicit some narratives out of it, mm -hmm. correct? So as, as architects um, or architectural professionals, as well as creative artists, we always face constraints when we are working. We cannot have a project which is not without a constraint, maybe due to time or due to the people involved and the, the resources that you have and such. Um, and you're talking, are you talking about also imposing other constraints um, on top of the ones that you probably identify and encounter while you're doing a project? And are you adding another layer of uh, constraints in your project? Is that how? how it works yeah there's kind of because there's the original kind of base constraint that the ones that are kind of imposed from the outside in the case of this project and its original manifestation it was a thesis project and there is a inherent boundary to how long you could work on it <laughs> um there's uh the way or the um the rhythm of like how often you're checked in on you know uh and how often you have to reflect like the rhythm of reflection in the project, you could say. Um, 
and how or how how often you have to do reflection only. I don't want to really want to split reflection and, and making too much because I don't think they're really split. I feel like they're happening at the same time. But um, how often like someone comes from the outside and is like, hey, tell me about the project or where are you at? Like that's a, that's a piece that's important. An important constraint is like, okay, every so often I have to present this in some way or I have to show what's going on and when and how I show that is part of the constraint. The other one is um, the constraint of the kind of solitariness of the thesis project, which is just kind of ridiculous that you have to do it all yourself. But you know you, that it's not like a collaborative environment. There's a the, the the project. This project was you know would have gained potentially or could gain in in the, in the future by being actually uh, executed by the fact of of the um, the design practice of working in groups. Is that partially why you were attracted to the the, the theatrical concept that that yeah, was a exactly. way to kind of introduce the both the constraint of collaboration, but also the richness of collaboration. Yeah. Oh, totally. That's that's definitely part of it. Because like the idea is that in the theatrical, like the theatrical technique as opposed to the literary tech or literary writing technique is that what you have is you have people coming from with other kinds of knowledge, right? You have, and their knowledge will start to modulate the project in ways that first of all, you can't exactly know what the outcome will be, but you also don't have all of it, right? Like you don't have all of the knowledge, do all of the theater all at once, right? Like there's the necessity to have people who actually know better than you do. Um, not like, oh, there's a person who knows how to design this. It's that, oh, there's somebody who knows things about lights and they, that's what they know about. And you don't have that level of closeness to that. And therefore, the project, first of all, the project will be better in that case, but also they can bring something new to it based on what, first of all, the constraints that they know about their discipline, but also um, they can show you where you'll come up against walls, where you'll know, and that's that collaborative environment, right? You become one of the team as opposed to you being the driver. The rest of the team can potentially be the driver. It changes the, it changes the, the dynamic in like a really good way. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as we sort of move through this discussion and, and we're looking at your work, the questions of the central themes of our uh, symposium around hiding and revealing, um, one of the things that we've noticed is um, this notion of translation, how central that is uh, seemingly to your, to your practice in general, but also to this project. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about how that role of translation, um, you know, you've got translation through language, you've got mm -hmm. translation through discipline, you've got all of these ways. And what does these acts of translation, um, are they acts of, of hiding and revealing about mm -hmm. um, the different mediums or the different positions that you end up being in? Yeah. So the process of, you could say, translating uh, or moving things from one place to another, like in, in being moved, they change, right? Um, in being moved, the, the base, first of all, the base source changes when it gets moved. By, and in being moved, it allows you to both see a new part that was hidden. Like whether it's there originally or not doesn't really matter, right? But the fact is that, it, that a new piece emerges from something, right? So in taking the text and moving it from the book form to the theatrical form, you gain a different kind of spatialization. 
um, or a different way of engaging with its, with its generator. A flowchart is able to generate now few different kinds of spatialization as opposed to, or more kinds of spatialization, almost a few, but as opposed to just the flowchart becomes the book. And it's also able to generate, it also generates a different kind of design routine. The flowchart makes the text and there's writing and specifically Breck's own routine of writing. And then this one now starts to produce a, and reveal a different kind of design routine. One that's like architectural theatrical, you could say, I wouldn't wanna like collapse both modes of designing together, but there's that that begins to get revealed from a condition where you wouldn't, you wouldn't originally see how that could work. But at the same time, the constraints are hidden, right? They're hidden in the text. And it doesn't matter, again, it, it really doesn't matter whether they become visible or not. Um, it's, in some cases, it's actually better if they don't become visible, right? Because sometimes they take away from the fact that you have an interesting, either an interesting environment to explore or an interesting thing that kind of performance to watch. Um, and sometimes it takes away from that or it takes away from what the performance is trying to communicate internally or, you know, what, what it's trying to do. Um, do, you, do you think that if you look at, uh, for instance, your translation or retranslation of the title, does that encapsulate um, some of the, the tensions around translation? Yeah. The idea that, that um, each language in itself is hiding certain things. It has constraints in which you, in order to reveal the truth of the original language, uh, you need to hide certain things um, or and hide what the, the, the translated language mm -hmm. is hiding. <laughs> and in, do you feel that or is it something else that is happening? How do you yeah. understand this, this, this element? It's a little different. Like the, the original, like the, the title of the project and its repetition kind of gestures towards the process, right? as opposed or is like towards the process as opposed to an emergence from the base text, right? Like the art and craft of the art and craft fast your boss for the race. That's the, that's the like, okay, this project is about turning this into this, right? Turning this into like, it's, it's like I'm, I'm putting on, I'm performing the process of doing the translation. Um, but at the same time, I feel like the translation doesn't, it doesn't really, it's not like, oh yeah, it's revealing something that was in the text already, but that like you can't originally get to because you're inside. It's not really that. It's more like the, the translation provides you, it, it draws kind of the two languages into um, a different kind of relationship to each other, whether or not that's a, um, a fully you know, fully like stringent operation or not is part of the process of discovering that. Um, but also that the kind of moving and the stylistic continuity is the other thing. The question is, what does English allow you to preserve and allow you to either intensify or um, communicate? And what does, what pass to, what is left in the previous language for those who are speakers of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think my my provocation was kind of the idea of is translation a kind of trick, right? Is it always a kind of uh, a kind of illusion, <laughs> a kind oh, of yeah, yeah. distraction, right? Um, and that does that say something about um, all of these other kinds of acts of translation of, of mm -hmm. translating uh, a literary text to one that is theatrical to translating a drawing into um, a building are mm -hmm in all of these processes, is it essentially a kind of trick? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's just a trick because there's this intermediary. It's that process of doing the translation and it's most, it's really the most visible in, in the design construction process, you could say, where there's a large, there's chunks of periods where there's this intense work and there's like, like the process of building something is a lot of, it's like, there's all kinds of work. There's other processes that plug into it, right? It's not just this kind of straight shot. And it's the same in translation between, whether it's between languages or whether it's between disciplines or media, it's not a straight shot, right? It's not like a kind of, oh, there was never actually any difference in the first place. There's like this whole kind of weight of doing work that's in between it. And that ends up, that's very, that's like a point, a point that's very interesting and what the project is, in a way you could say the project is engaging with that where, the space in between the translations is where the stuff gets, is what the project is really engaging with, whether or not that appears or not, um, whether it's left hidden behind the fact that you have products or whether it's actually uh, latent in the product or probably you wanna see it, but it's that in-between period and where, where the things actually happen, right? Where the whole, and that's like the importance of the process is right in there, right? And sometimes you can see it on in, in the translations or on the surface of the translation. Sometimes it's in, um, kind of like a, you could say a bilingual translation where you see both at the same time and you can see that process happening where you can reconstruct it or explore it for yourself. Um, sometimes it's in the, um, I don't know, having a transcript when you're seeing something or even in, even in watching like a movie with subtitles. Like sometimes you can see it in that watching the movie with subtitles even hinted at. Um, especially when the subtitles aren't, like, when you're like a, a speaker of the language that you're watching it in and subtitles don't necessarily line up exactly. And you're like, ooh, I wonder what that decision was like. You know, there's all the, there's all the decisions and all the like work of bringing things in from the outside that happens when you start doing it. Yeah, of course. And, and, I, and, yeah. I, and I think that was somewhere the provocation is that there is a, I think in a, in a, let's say an idealized sense, a sense that of the, the possibility of collaboration mm -hmm. um, is exciting in this moment, but we, you know, uh, we know that a, 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 you know, a bad translation can totally uh, kill the acceptance of a text, but a good translation can also transform and even elevate. And, you know, a good builder can hide <laughs> a terrible drawing, uh, possibly and hide things that are um, only revealed through the process of, uh, of making. You could say like the drawing, the one side or one, one version can allow you to both see something, whether or not it's, whether it's good or bad, about a different piece. You could say like, uh, like a project that makes sense in planned, but that doesn't when you're inside of it, or one that makes sense when you're inside of it, but is like this is kind of like not great from the point of view of kind of, you could say architectural engagement. It's like, oh, look at the drawing and wow, that's really bad drawing, but like maybe it's a good space to be in, um, that kind of thing. And then also at the same time, those who are doing the translation add their expertise to it, like in the, the expertise of the, construction of trades, expertise of trades goes into the execution of the building. And often there's a lot of kind of, you could say problem solving deciding that happens on site where someone will have to make a decision based on the immediacy of what the material is doing, right? Whether and how that material is interacting and its own processes, speeds, uh, mechanisms of how that stuff comes to site moves, um, how that meets with another that other process that other kind of design the 
movements and speeds of design and that the kind of decision making like those meet together and that's where the things start happening very interesting also um the nature of architectural practice in general mm. um, with um uh, design a building with a certain program uh, 10 years later reused for a different purpose uh, such such things always uh come forth and uh, probably it's your piece is a medium to think about those more um, in the architectural context uh, of practice and building. I think that this is probably a, a good place for us to uh, wrap up our conversation. I think we've covered a lot of terrain. It's a, a very uh, rich uh, and, and multifaceted project. Um, and I, I really hope that uh, you keep um, uh, finding ways to bring different versions and different iterations of it to the uh, to to the fore because it seems everyone reveals something to you as a uh, as a designer and a researcher as well. So it's uh, it seems like a pretty rich terrain for you to keep working in. Thank yeah. you very much, Josh. That was a delightful conversation. Yeah, thanks. It was great. Thanks for being here.